Hello everybody, good evening, good day to all of you and welcome to the 78th live episode of Ask Abhijit. Uh, today as well, like yesterday, I'm going to keep it a shorter session, about 60 to 75 minutes. My throat is still not very well, so today will be a slightly uh, abbreviated session. So let us see who all is there. I can see Sakshi Priya, Explorer, Khushi, Sankarshan, Tejas. Uh, Kingster, Tanushri, Super Sayan, Tanmay, Khand, Samarth, Dungar Singh, Chauhan, Keya, Lakshya Sharma, Mehir Patel, Sampriti, Harshada, Mox Gaming, Ping, Pinak, Pinak Pani Joshi, Harsh Jain, Dev Chandan, Soham Charaji, Amol, Tanmay, Bani, Amar, and many other people. Harshit 2.0, Beast Singh, Gugu. Good evening, good day to all of you. So, what questions do we have? Let us take a look. Let's see what questions we have and let's get right into it. What's the relation between consciousness and quantum mechanics? We don't quite know yet. Uh, we know how to use quantum mechanics in doing various things, but we don't know what quantum mechanics actually is, what it's telling us, what the laws of quantum mechanics are telling us. Whether uh, consciousness is a factor in quantum mechanics, we still don't know these things. So, I my answer is, I don't know. Right, what else? <clears throat> um, uh, how how Gandhi ji gained influence in the Congress after returning to India from South Africa? Why did everyone obey his orders in India? Well, that's the million or billion dollar question. How did this individual who was in South Africa for more than 20 years somehow automatically become so powerful the moment he reached India? So it's clearly it shows you that the Congress party was a British creation. All the rulers of the Congress party were, well, people who were in the good standing of the British. And Mr. Gandhi also was brought to India by the British and essentially parachuted to the leadership position of the Congress party. That's what happened. So it's all about power structures. What were the real power structures in the Congress? Right? And uh, whom were those power structures beholden to? So that's how it was. So it's essentially that the entire setup was created by the British themselves. The founder of the Congress party was Alan Hume who was British, right? And all the leaders of the Congress party, the big leaders of the Congress party, top leaders, they were all English-educated, British-educated Anglophiles. Everything they had, they owed it to the British, right? And so did Mr. Gandhi. So essentially, that's what it was. So Mr. Gandhi, so the, the aim of the Congress party was to give an impression to Indian Indians that there is a, a freedom struggle going on. And... Uh, it is a civilized freedom struggle. We don't do violence. We don't really do any real harm to the British. We do all these, uh, all this tokenism, and that's what it was all about. All about. So, you know, there's a lot still that we don't know. There is a lot that the historians refuse to write about, and the truth will eventually all come out. All right. Um, <clears throat> Okay, let's see some other questions. What is this? Which civilization was al alive in the rest of India during the Harappan era? What was the political map of India? India is one single civilization. How many times do I tell you, tell you guys this? Huh? 
इंडिया इज वन सिंगल सिविलाइजेशन वन ओ एन ई वन देर आर नॉट थर्टी सेवन डिफरेंट सिविलाइजेशन इन इंडिया दो कॉल्ड हरप्पन सिविलाइजेशन इज इंडियन सिविलाइजेशन फ्रॉम नॉर्थ टू साउथ ईस्ट टू वेस्ट इट्स वन सिंगल सिविलाइजेशन ड्रिल दैट थ्रू योर थिक्स the media will tell you there are civilizations everywhere kiladi civilization some other civilization somewhere else chandragatugad civilization every new archaeological site they find they term it as a civilization and that's what we all end up believing there is only one civilization in india repeat after me there's only one civilization in india and throughout india's history there has always been one single civilization it has had lots of different cultural manifestations lots of local manifestations in different parts of india and it's always been one civilization it's always been the worship of the same deities everywhere you may give the deity a different name but it's still the same deity you can call a lord shiva something else in south india and something else in east india and something else in west india but it's the same god the overall structure the overall values the overall concepts the overall everything is the same so my answer is during the harappan era there was only one civilization in the rest of india and all across india which is indian civilization <clears throat> okay this is a question i get every week hundreds of times the great indian warrior king samudragupta is called the napoleon of india despite being too much older than napoleon why do these foreign historians frame history in indian history in such a way these are eurocentric historians they see everything from their own perspective so why don't we see things from our perspective is anybody preventing all of us from seeing things from an indocentric perspective no we also want to see things from a eurocentric perspective unfortunately so it doesn't matter why they have done it this way or that way we should see things from our perspective we know that samudra gupta was alive more than 1000 years before napoleon right so we can call napoleon the samudra gupta of india and you know what it is not right to call napoleon the samudra gupta of india samudra gupta was a victorious king he never lost he was the hero of a thousand battles he unified the entirety of india almost the entirety of india under one political banner his banner Napoleon lost Napoleon lost twice terribly he was a loser and samudragupta did a lot for india from a cultural perspective from a civilizational perspective napoleon did nothing of such sort for for the french people yeah sure he gave them a code of laws and all that stuff but overall he was a very selfish self-centered person everything he did was for his own personal glory he had no concept of civilization or serving the people or any such thing it was all for me 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 that's all it was so it is it is actually wrong to call napoleon the samudragupta of india napoleon was a much smaller person than samudragupta right samudragupta was a way greater person a way greater emperor than napoleon ever was so that's what i can say about this my dear friends here we go again 
so Saugata Majumdar says Vedic Sanskrit is known as the oldest language in the world. Then why maximum modern words are derived from Greek words? Wh- which maximum modern words are derived from Greek words? Please explain. Give me one example, right? I would like to see some examples of maximum modern. When you talk about maximum modern words, are you talking about language? Which language are you talking about? You talking about French? You talking about German? You talking about Russian? Are you talking about Hindi? Are you talking about Swahili? Which language are you referring to? If you want to ask a question, my dear friend, please frame it properly and give an example or two so that I can understand what you're talking about. So, therefore, I am unable to answer this question. (laughs) Okay, what else do we have? This is Bhatijas. What do you think of Tamil's trending say no to Sanskrit on Twitter today while they tolerate Urdu universities in Karnataka? Why Tamils hate Sanskrit? Well, I... You know what? I am not Tamil, so I don't know why they hate Sanskrit. I think it's all the consequence of uh, everything they've been taught in the past 60-70 years. They worship individuals like that fellow E.V. What's his name? Periyar. That Periyar fellow. The disgusting fellow called Pre- Periyar. They worship him nowadays. And it's they worship him because they are taught to worship him. Uh, they Every year they, they garland the statue of that horrific bishop, Bishop Caldwell. And all their Dravidianist parties, they, 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 so the entire uh, atmosphere, the entire environment in Tamil, uh, Tamil Nadu is very much anti India, anti Hinduism, anti Sanskrit, anti civilization. Right. So that's why they, they hate Sanskrit nowadays. These young kids, they, they, what do they know? That's what they are taught. That's what their parents teach them. That was, that's what the teachers teach them. That's what the media tells them. That's what the politicians tell them. So this is the thing about India today. In, dem- in Indian democracy today, hating your culture, hating your nation is a good thing. That is to be tolerated under freedom of speech. So that's the kind of India we are living in today. It's a mediocre, third-rate India. And uh, so as long as this education system, this system of governance, this constitution, these laws, the continue, India is going to, re- it's, India is going to go backwards. And, and you will soon see that in other states also the same sort of sentiments are going to start emerging. In the northeast of India, you already have that in certain states, which are totally uh, states that have completely lost their actual original culture and religion, that have been totally Abrahamized. They, there, they already hate India. They even hate their own ancestors for, for being uh, non-whatever, <laughs> for, for following their own indigenous culture and religion. So that's the kind of India we're living in today. India is a very soft state. Separatism is is, is good. It's a good thing in India. If you express uh, contempt for Hinduism and Indian culture, it's a, it's a very good thing actually nowadays in India. So it's no surprise that you see these things. And yeah, Urdu universities, Urdu is good because it came from outside of India, right? So it has to be good. That's how it is. Should India block the Malacca Strait to pressurize China, considering the fact that a huge portion of China's trade happens through the Malacca Strait? The question is, does India have the ability to block the Malacca Strait? Does India have the naval firepower to do that? India doesn't. The Indian Navy isn't that powerful, unfortunately. 
India's Navy is not enough good, not even good enough right now to be a proper coast guard. What is the strength of a navy? How do you quantify the strength of a navy? Do you quantify it by saying we have these many ships? No. You may have a thousand ships, but if your ships are toothless, then they are pointless. Right. The strength of a navy has only one measure. And that measure is the number of offensive missiles you can deploy at sea at any given time. So if you look at the Chinese, on any given day, they can deploy approximately 1,500 offensive missiles on their navy. The Japanese have a similar number, approximately 1,500 or so, maybe 1,300 I would say, offensive missiles the Japanese navy can deploy at any given time. So right now, approximately 1,300 missiles will be deployed. So that is the strength of a navy. Well, let's do a similar calculation for the Indian navy. I'll not give the numbers, but they are abysmally low. Right? And therefore, India is not currently in a position to block the Malacca Strait, even if it wants to. The question is, let's say you send some ships there, you blockade the, the strait. But then what are the consequences? Can you indefinitely sustain such a blockade? Does India have the, does the Indian Navy have the ability to indefinitely sustain a blockade like that? And the answer is most likely no. And can India deal with the consequences of blockading the strait? Let's say you blockade the strait, you successfully blockade it for a week, two weeks, one month, two months, then what happens? What are the downstream consequences? Does India know what the consequences are? We know what the consequences are. Can India deal with these consequences? We have to think like that, right? We can't say, okay, let's go and blockade it. After that, what happens? We have to think. We have to look at all the second order, third order, fourth order, fifth order, tenth order, twentieth order effects of doing such a thing. Only then do you, such a, do you actually consider doing such a thing seriously. And you want to pressurize China? There are lots of ways of pressurizing China. But we have to consider all the effects, right? Before we can even think of it. And as of today, I don't think India has the ability to do it. And therefore, I would say India at this point in time, at this juncture, should not think of blockading the Malacca Strait. For India to be able to do that, we need it, we need to augment the Navy significantly. We need to have at least 50 submarines. We need to have like at least a hundred more warships and we need to have the ability to deploy at least at least a thousand offensive missiles at any given time. Then we can think of doing such a thing. All right. Okay, what else do we have? Um... Pushkar Kumar says, Xuanzang, Huin Tsang, Xuanzang mentions a type of rice called Mahasali, only found in the Magadh region. It's Each grain is as large as a black bean. Is this variety of rice still present and grown somewhere? Well, I am not aware of it. I know that in the northeast of India, there is a variety of rice that is black in color or dark purple in color. They make heat out of it. Right, so it's it's found in uh, Nagaland, Manipur, etc., and other places also. There is also a kind of rice, a variety of rice which is red in color in the so-called northeast of India, 
and there must have been many other varieties of, of rice in india like what you're mentioning but i am not sure if this specific variety mahasali that you are referring to it's still is it still like is it still grown somewhere i am not sure about it i think what happened during the so called uh, green revolution during uh, the congress regime was that everything was standardized india had so many varieties of rice and so many other varieties of crops that were all essentially wiped out and only one or two varieties of rice were uh, grown and only one or two varieties of wheat were grown as part of the so called green revolution which essentially bankrupted the the uh, the incredible varieties of of uh, various uh, staples we had the crops that we had so for instance we had millet uh, we had the the crops called jowar bajra in uh, in indian languages right those were crops that were staples for thousands of years and today very few people even have heard of these crops so that's what the so called green revolution did it kind of made a mess of india's uh, agriculture and uh, maybe many of these varieties may have gone out of existence permanently you know because of that i hope that is not the case but uh, but my i personally haven't uh, seen this specific variety of rice that you are speaking about unfortunately okay let me take a couple of questions from the comments uh, which i was not able to answer before okay the real well reason of parsi wealth is that they traded opium with china many, many made crores of chinese lives like hell ultimately ultimately bankrupted its economy and made it a british prey when hindu traders denied that sin money yeah it is uh, well known that the parsi businessmen were employed by the british to um to be at the forefront of the opium trade with china so the so called opium wars a very famous uh, event it's not one war it was at least two wars that occurred in the in the 19th century so what happened is that the british uh they had uh, defeated the chinese the british americans and a bunch of uh, european powers had defeated defeated the chinese empire and they were forcing them to uh purchase opium and other cash cash crops in exchange for uh gold essentially so they were extracting all the value out of china and in exchange giving china opium and uh addicting millions of chinese to this terrible poison right so that's and and uh, you need manpower to do this so the manpower was essentially the parsi traders uh, that's essentially where, how the parsis became so incredibly rich they had these opium warehouses they had the opium business the uh, all the big major parsi trading houses that you know of today they all started off in the opium trade in the in the drug business so they had these opium warehouses in shanghai and other places even the sassoons the sassoons who are supposed to be the great philanthropists etc they were drug runners uh, david sassoon had a very big opium business in shanghai one of the i think there's a building called sassoon house that still stands in shanghai it's used for something else it was their their warehouse i think where they stored the drug the opium so that's how these so called business people got started off 
that's how they derived all their wealth this is not a controversial matter this is a matter of record everyone knows this so yes uh, what you are saying gautam is absolutely right all right <clears throat> How can we have a sharp mind like you, as you recall so much data so easily? Well, um, what I mean, the reason I recall things is that I I give always give myself permission to forget things, right? So when I read something, I have I know that if I don't find it interesting, I'm not going to remember it. I don't care. I don't have to remember everything I read. I would say more than half of what I read, I actively forget it. I say it's not important. I am not interested. I will forget it. And the second thing is that when I read something that I find interesting, I make mental connections. Oh, yeah, I, I okay, I, I come across this new information. Yeah, it reminds me of this thing and that thing and that thing. So this creates these mental connections. So I am doing active reading, not passive reading. But just read something and just go through it. No, when I'm reading, I'm also thinking. So when I come across a new concept, new idea, new information, I correlate it mentally with other things that I know about, that I know of, other pieces of information that I already have in my mind, other concepts, other ideas that I have in my mind. I try to link it with that and I try to ask myself, how can I argue against this, for instance? How can I argue against what is being what is being said in this book? Or how can I put the uh, the, the concept differently? Or what can I compare it with? So that way, I it creates lots of mental connections. And that's why it's easier to recall information, supposedly. Uh, I mean, maybe that's that's how it works. I'm not quite sure. But the thing is, when you read, you have to read actively. Don't read passively. You're not watching a movie. You're trying to absorb new information and, and understand new ideas. So do it actively. And create connections with other ideas that may already be there in your mind. And if you find this information, whatever you're reading, not interesting, give yourself permission to forget it. It doesn't matter. So that's kind of how I do things. That's what works for me. I'm sure everybody is different, but try it this way. Maybe it may work. Yeah. Okay. What about belief of Hitler about Aryan race? Hitler was stupid. Forget about him. What would be the condition of India today if India hadn't been invaded by the foreigners? India would have been a better place. Okay, what else do we have? Something interesting, please. Something interesting. Give me some interesting questions. Paritosh says, why Elon and NASA want to bring humans to Mars as Mars is much nearer to the asteroid belt and has a danger of asteroids in Earth? <laughs> Where did you get this information that there's a danger of asteroids there? Uh, we have never witnessed any asteroid strike on Ma on Mars, and uh, and yeah, it is closer to the asteroid belt than to the Earth, but the asteroid belt is still a huge, humongous distance away from Mars. The asteroid belt is roughly between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And it's really, really, really far away from Mars. And even if you go into the asteroid belt, it's almost empty. You won't find an asteroid for kilometers, hundreds of kilometers, maybe millions of kilometers around you. That's how it is. Even the asteroid belt is very empty. So, you know, this uh, danger, I mean, I'm sure this is what you studied and learned in school, but the danger that you're referring to is over-exaggerated. So the reason why Elon Musk... Let's talk about Elon Musk, not NASA. NASA has never said we need to bring humans to Musk. Elon Musk keeps emphasizing that. So his 
logic is that we are messing up the planet and it's always good to have plan b it's always good to be a multiplanetary species in case something goes wrong with one planet we know what happened to the dinosaurs we know that there was a either an asteroid strike or a cometary strike in conjunction with other events that happened on our planet like the deccan traps etc that essentially killed off a significant majority of the species on our planet at that time so we don't want something like that to happen to us and therefore it always makes sense to have another planet to go to and that's why he wants to bring humans to mars uh and also because we have this uh, this entire situation going on right now of climate change and the pollution of the atmosphere and the oceans and all that we may end up ruining this planet and making it uninhabitable in that case it's always good to have a second planet so that's some of the logic that's going around and that's why uh elon musk is trying to uh, make us a multiplanetary species and he aims to uh, send a rocket with human beings to mars pretty soon maybe in the next 20 years maximum okay uh, where are we where else are we Manu Gowda says, "Does city-state concept work good for some Indian cities today?" See, the city-state concept was present in ancient Greece when you had the city-states, like Athens, like Sparta, and so on. But these were independent states. These were like independent countries, but cities, city-states. In India, we had uh, various Ganarajas, republics, Mahajanapadas, etc., which are also small, smaller-sized, smaller-scale republics. But the city-state concept essentially says that you have independent cities. And how will that work for India? India is a is one single nation, right? In in case of some cities, like some cities are so large, they have a population of several million. For instance, Delhi is an enormous city. Kolkata, Mumbai. many of these metropolitan cities are their population exceeds that of many countries actually right so maybe there is a case to be made to convert each of these cities into its own state perhaps so there is an experiment that could be tried that would uh, hopefully give better governance and administration etc but uh, yeah that's what i can say so in in case of certain very large metropolitan cities you could possibly you know do that sort of experiment and uh, create a city state framework perhaps i don't know so maybe it could work maybe it would give better governance it's something certainly that uh, one can uh, think of and perhaps perhaps try it out what is akashic records well i don't know what that is nope i don't know when mr gandhi led a protest why was he never injured why the british tried to stop using violence was mr gandhi on a <laughs> was mr gandhi on a diet that made him strong physically no uh the british never ever tried to uh hit mr gandhi in any way whatsoever the reason he was never injured is that because the british made sure he was never injured he was special somehow to the british they had special affection for mr gandhi apparently when it comes to mr lala lajpat rai he was killed right he was uh, beaten to death during one of his protests and many indians were beaten to death during demonstrations and protests against the british but somehow mr gandhi's protests were special the british never ever 
touched Mr. Gandhi. Isn't that fascinating? All right. Mm, what else do we have? Uh, should Gandhi's Im where is it? Oops. Should Gandhi's image be replaced with that of Mr. Bose and also some others who also did contribute to the freedom struggle on Indian notes currency? I would say, yeah, why not? Why not? Mr. Gandhi wasn't the only one who contributed to India's freedom struggle. Actually, he did well. That's for that's for you all to judge. But yes, yeah, certainly, why not, Mr. Bose? Why not, Mr. Bose? Mr. Bose is the man who really, who actually scared the hell, scared the pants of the British, and that's that's the it's the reason why the British actually decided to leave. You know, because Mr. Bose was so popular, especially among the armed forces, the Royal Indian Navy, the Royal uh, British Army, or whatever they called it. And they were so scared, they decided to leave post-haste. So it's actually Mr. Bose who contributed to the uh, hasty withdrawal of the British from India. So I would say, yes, why don't we have Mr. Bose on India's currency notes? Why not? I really wonder why it's not being done. After all these years, 70 years, we still see the same old face, same tired old face on our currency notes. So I think it's, yeah, it's certainly time for a change of that kind. All right. <clears throat> what else do we have? Okay, let me take some questions from... Uh, okay, what is this here? This is a long question. Akash says, What is the definition of Dharma by Krishna? It's so confusing. He does things that Rama would never do. Why both are contradictory? Why always every Indian king followed the way of Rama and not Krishna, not attacking enemies when they are running away from battle, Prithviraj Chauhan, etc., etc., etc. It looks like they were following Rama's way. If they were following Krishna's way, they would never have been defeated. As per me, Krishna Dharma is to go to any extent, do anything, do ultimate intolerance if it establishes Dharma, isn't it? What's your view on how Krishna interpreted Dharma? See, you can make it very complicated or you can make it very, very simple. What Krishna interpreted Dharma is, is uh, what's written in the Bhagavad Gita, right? So the Bhagavad Gita is actually, <laughs> it's quite simple. In two words, it is destroy Adharma. Do whatever it takes to destroy Adharma. That's it. That is the simple message that is given in the Bhagavad Gita. Don't overcomplicate things. Your only duty as, as a king, as a ruler, as a warrior is to do whatever it takes to destroy a dharma. Now, we have to understand the difference between Lord Rama and Lord Krishna, right? Lord Ram lived in the Treta Yuga. Lord Krishna lived in the Dwapar Yuga. These are different Yugas, right? So, during the Treta Yuga, it is said that the world was a much better place and therefore Lord Rama could... Uh, it was okay for him to... to uh, conduct himself in a more idealistic way than what Lord Krishna could afford to do during the Dwapar Yuga. Because the Dwapar Yuga, the things, the conditions were different, human nature was different, and the worst Yuga obviously is today the Kali Yuga. So today we have to go even worse, go, go even beyond what Lord Krishna said and uh, follow the precepts of Vishnu Gupta Chanakya. 
so even in the arthashastra the principal duty of the king is to serve the nation and the people the highest morality of a king is that his kingdom and his people should prosper right that's so again it's all about service it's all, it's about the king's duty is not to to enjoy life and enjoy the the power and money and all that his only duty is to serve the king is a servant his only duty is to put the nation and the people ahead of his comfort and his and his and his uh, pleasure and joy and all that but the way to do it is different in the arthashastra in the arthashastra the king is enjoined to do whatever it takes even crooked means even assassinations even poisonings even all kinds of other things in order to succeed in serving the people and the nation right so in the treta yuga it was different in the dwapar yuga it was different and in the kali yuga also it was different but the uh, aim of the king was always the same the duty of the king was always the same to serve the people and the nation right so the definition of dharma by par krishna is very simple do whatever it takes to destroy a dharma that's essentially what the entire mahabharat war is about and that's what the bhagavad gita is about do your duty forget what whatever uh maya you observe just do your duty and don't worry about the uh results that's what he said to arjun so that's what i can say in in brief i i like to keep things very simple all right let us go back to the questions um what else do we have Okay what do we have here history of the khan title how radio electromagnetic waves help in astrophysics as they cannot be visualized let me answer the first question the history of the khan title so today khan is a very very common surname among the muslim people in the subcontinent of india in even in iran i believe so in india pakistan bangladesh afghanistan etc muslims many muslims have the surname or title khan and uh, they seem to consider it uh, something of uh, uh, something that uh, adds some prestige to them right and even in iran i think the the title khan or surname khan is used to some extent so so therefore the common belief in india and other places is that khan is a is a muslim surname but that is not the case khan is not a muslim surname it's a mongol title it means leader or ruler all right and it's not just a mongol title it is something even the turks used for the same purpose to denote leader so the mongols and the turks they have a common origin and their ancestors were called the hunnic peoples the huns and we indians also had uh we had uh, many encounters with the huns uh so their native culture religion whatever whatever you want to call it is called tengrism in english tengrism so the the principal deity is the the sky god called tengri and the mother goddess called umai i believe she's called umai and there's a whole other pantheon of minor gods and deities and all so it's a polytheistic culture so tengrism is what the, it's it's called in the west and in english so it is a culture that was common to the turkic peoples and the mongolic peoples and their ancestors the hun the hunnic peoples uh 
and therefore uh, the original turkic language is also very similar to the original mongol language in fact when turkey became independent the father of the nation mustafa kemal atatürk he ordered that all arabic words be removed from turkish and the equivalent mongol words should be used in their place so he knew that the mongolian language is purer than the, than the turkish language but it's also very similar so they these these peoples the hunnic peoples the turks and the mongols they called their leaders khans khan khan it's not actually k it's not a hard k it's more like a h khan and the greatest of the khans as we know was was chinggis chinggis khan he was actually the khan of the khans he was a khagan and uh, we had other uh, other khans such as ogode khan kublai khan and so on and so forth so when the mongols suddenly expanded across eurasia under the leadership of chinggis khan they essentially almost destroyed the islamic world almost and they conquered baghdad which was then the seat the, the center of the islamic world it was the seat of the islamic caliphate they sacked baghdad uh, they sacked the khwarazm empire and they went far and wide in uh, and they essentially started ruling all these islamic uh, territories and eventually the mongols who were ruling these territories because of assimilation etc they eventually those mongols would eventually have converted to islam and what happened is that all the rulers at that time of the islamic world were all khans mongol khans and therefore this title khan it acquired a certain extreme prestige among the islamic peoples and then slowly slowly they started uh, using the term in their own lives and for themselves so that's how the term khan entered the islamic world because their overlords were the great mongol khans and over time over the centuries it became kind of a kind of part and parcel of the islamic world and islamic life and that's how today you will see lots of indian muslims pakistani muslims afghans etc using that as as their surname essentially so that in short is the history of the khan title <clears throat> what else do we have let's see some other questions i don't know much about the origin of telugu so can't answer that uh what else do we have why does wikipedia support the aryan migration treat theory well you know what i can answer why i support certain things but if somebody else does it you need to go ask them <laughs> i i don't know really now i i don't know how how people's minds work i don't know why people think the way they do they do so i can only answer for myself unfortunately did you read the whole arthashastra yes i have read it more than once the whole arthashastra and i have yet to digest much of it it's a it's a very complex and uh, detailed book it's not an easy read by any means right so it's something you it's something that you have to read multiple times and every time you read it even you may even if you may have read it in the past you will still find so much new information that you may not have properly understood before so you learn something new every time you read it and say similarly with indian philosophical texts you may have read the entire philosophical treatise the what's it called the uh the principal upanishads and yet every time you reread it 
you will find gems that you you may not have noticed before so that's how it goes family relations between prophet muhammad and samudra gupta what are you smoking dear sir <laughs> oh good god um let me see some what else do we have your views on mahatma gandhi's proposal to adopt non violence as national defense, defense policy yes the best defense policy is don't defend yourself it's bound to succeed isn't it just look at tibet look at tibet they believed in non violence when the chinese invaded they said please dear sirs please leave this is our land please don't be so violent and so rude and see where they are today the tibetans that's what happens when you adopt non violence as your official uh, official defense policy mr gandhi if he had his way india would be broken into a thousand pieces to pieces today so that's my views about mr gandhi's proposal i don't know anything about the various castes of india so sorry i don't know i can't answer okay who was ataturk and why is he so important for the turks okay so that's a good question mustafa kemal ataturk is the father is is considered to be the father the father of the modern nation of turkey and why is he so important it's because turkey exists essentially only because of him otherwise turkey would have been fragmented and broken off into different pieces and parceled off to different uh, to different countries and different rulers that's what would have happened so it's like this uh there have been several caliphates the the rashidun caliphate and various um, umayyad caliphate abbasid caliphate uh, and so on and the last caliphate was the ottoman caliphate its capital was constantinople istanbul right and the caliph was the ottoman sultan the head of the ottoman empire now uh, the last great ottoman sultan was um, suleiman suleiman they call him sulif suleiman the magnificent after suleiman all the other caliphs who came after him with the exception of one or two they were all degenerates they were all losers and their only preoccupation was the palace politics and the harem <laughs> that's their only preoccupation and as a consequence of that uh, as, as a consequence of that turkey over the years became weaker and weaker it still had its huge possessions all the big territories it had conquered during the heyday of the ottoman empire uh, large parts of eastern europe uh, syria mesopotamia greece northern africa and so on and so forth yes but turkey over time became really weak and uh, its its uh, its governance became very rigid its society became very rigid and in the 19th century turkey was known as the sick men sick man of europe that's what uh, turkey was looked upon as now what happened in the late 19th century is that there were many wars turkey allied itself with the germans uh, there were there were conflicts with the with the russian empire and, and the british and so on and turkey essentially became very weak 
and it was invaded by various forces the russians the english etc and the, some of them were just a few miles away from the capital capital city constantinople and the turkish caliph the ottoman sultan he spent his time playing one power against the other and that's how he remained independent so it's in the 19th century that this boy mustafa was born and he was a brilliant soldier a uh, very strange man he had no friends and uh, all that but he was a brilliant soldier he participated in in um, several wars acquitted himself brilliantly and all that now in the uh, early 20th century turkey finally uh, entered the first world war and turkey allied itself with germany which which was a mistake so at the end of the war turkey lost and turkey was was partitioned essentially by the victorious powers the western powers and it was occupied by the western powers that's what happened and uh, to make a long sh- story short what mustafa kemal atatürk did was that he he rebelled against this he rebelled against his own ottoman emperor the caliph and he uh, he sparked off the turkish war of independence against the western powers against the bulgarians the greeks the, and the ottomans themselves and to make a long story short he ended up prevailing at a great risk to his own life he did all this but he prevailed he was a brilliant soldier br- brilliant commander and he he won independence for turkey and he was able to carve out a, a reasonably small compact nation of turkey for the turks and all the other uh, territories that were part of the ottoman empire he just let them go he didn't care about that and then after the war was over he became the president for life essentially of turkey and then he became an administrator he put away his military uniform he would never wear it again and he instituted uh, all kinds of reforms in turkey he secularized turkey he banned the burqa and all that all that stuff he um, tried to make turkey in the image of a western nation a modern nation he modernized turkey he essentially tried to ban islam from turkey eradicate islam from turkey uh he changed the alphabet from the turkic from the from the arabic alphabet to a latinized alphabet and so on and so forth so he did a lot of things that completely transformed turkey from a backward looking 19th century nation to a modern 20th century republic right so they the turkish people gave him the title of atatürk which means the father of the turks and even today the turkish politicians they try to claim the legacy in some way or the other of atatürk even though turkey is now going back towards islamization but still they try to claim to claim the legacy of atatürk that whatever whatever we are doing is what atatürk would have wanted that sort of thing so that in short is who atatürk was and why he was so important for the turks i would say he was one of the greatest military commanders of all time and one of the most colossal leaders of the 20th century for sure a really really significant personality of the 20th century okay what else do we have was arunachal pradesh ever part of any chinese empire on what grounds does china claim it china has no grounds for claiming anything arunachal pradesh has never been part of any chinese empire the chinese have had no presence ever in arunachal pradesh or even really in tibet uh the only basis of the chinese claim on tibet and all that is uh, the fact that tibet was a mongolian protectorate so it's like this 
China was in the 13th and 14th century, I think. China was under the reign of the Yuan dynasty. The Yuan dynasty is what's called a conquest dynasty. It was founded by Kublai Khan, who was a Mongol conqueror. And Kublai Khan backdated the dynasty to the to his grandfather, Chinggis Khan. So according to this chronology, uh, the first emperor of the of the Yuan dynasty is Chinggis Khan, the second is Ogode Khan, the third is uh, Kublai Khan, and so on. So this was a conquest dynasty. It was a Chinese dynasty, but the emperors were all Mongols. Now the relationship that the Yuan dynasty had with Tibet is that of Guru Shishya, teacher and student. The Tibetans were the teachers. The Yuan dynasty, the Mongols, were the students. So essentially, all their priests, all their all their Brahmins, so to say, were Tibetan priests, Tibetan monks. Because the Mongolians, uh, Kublai Khan had decreed that Tibetan Buddhism is like the de facto state religion of the Yuan Empire. And the Mongols were not very good at uh, Buddhism and all that. So they would uh, uh, employ Tibetan masters, Tibetan gurus, as the officiators of all the ceremonies and and the and the uh, and all that, right? And in exchange, not in exchange, but because all their gurus came from Tibet, that's why they uh, considered Tibet to be their protectorate, which means that it was under Mongol protection. But you would, uh, there was no case ever of Mongol soldiers and armies being stationed in Tibet. Tibet was never under Mongolian occupation. They had the highest respect for Tibet, right? So the thing is, the Mongolians had the highest of respect for Indian culture. And they had imbibed Indian culture through Tibet. Tibet was the intermediary. And that's why they gave the same respect to Tibet as well. So Tibet was a Mongolian protectorate. It was a protectorate of the Yuan dynasty, which was a Mongolian dynasty in China. But today the Chinese Communist Party says that the Yuan dynasty, which is a Chinese dynasty, it owned Tibet. And that's why Tibet should be part of China. That is the convoluted logic the Chinese Communist Party employs today. And then they claim that because the sixth Dalai Lama was born in Tawang, which is in Arunachal Pradesh, that's why Arunachal Pradesh is supposed to be regarded as South Tibet. And that's why that also belongs to China. That's the ridiculous, stupid, imbecilic logic the Chinese Communist Party employs to further its territorial uh, claims. Right? So that, in brief, is the is the, is the story of the so-called Chinese claim on Arunachal Pradesh, which is a lie. Harshit says, "Is there a need for India to change its capital due to pollution and low visibility in winter? If yes, what should be the priorities while choosing a new capital effect on economy and its pros and cons?" I think it's high time India should dump Delhi as the capital. Uh, Delhi has never been a good capital for India. I mean, from the time of Indraprastha, etc., it's always been a city of bad luck, if you believe in such things. <laughs> right? And today, if you see Delhi, it's a congested, deeply, highly polluted city and all that. It's always hostage to all kinds of nonsensical activities. I think it is high time that India should choose a new capital. India should build a new capital from, from scratch somewhere. Ideally, in the heartland of India. Somewhere equidistance from all four corners of India. That's the kind of thing India needs to do. I think uh, so. Uh, so I think uh, the priorities while choosing choosing a new capital should be it should be equidistance to all four corners of India. It should be equally accessible from 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 everywhere. Uh, 
it should have excellent connectivity with the entire country it should be in the heart of the country not in some extreme border uh, region like delhi is about 200 uh, kilometers away from the from the tibetan border today right so it's easy for the chinese to target delhi if they wish to so that sort of thing also has to be looked into so that's what i would say i think it is not a bad idea at all for india to choose a new capital to build a new capital city from from scratch somewhere in the heartland of india maybe somewhere in central india and uh, make it a city only for administrator uh, administration no other population is needed there only administrators rb and all that and all the facilities should be available there and uh, yeah so that's a that's a good idea i would say how can we evolve our species artificially i don't think it's in you know this entire thing of playing god and trying to tinker with your genetic core and trying to tinker with your bone structure and all it is it is not a good idea at all we simply don't understand how our genes work let me explain about the human genome now so now over the the human genome exists in 23 chapter it's like a book a book in 23 chapters 23 pairs of chromosomes and each pair of chromosome has a certain uh, a bunch of genes in it right now if you look at the entire genetic code of human of, of humans more than 97 98% of this genetic code is called uh, non coding dna it doesn't code for any proteins and uh, some scientists term it as the dark matter of dna or junk dna and they call it junk dna because they don't know what it does it doesn't seem to do anything that's why they have called it junk dna those scientists are idiots nature is parsimonious nothing is wasted nothing exists for no reason if there are all these gene sequences in our genome and let's say they are not doing anything right now it doesn't mean they are useless they do serve some functions some purpose maybe we don't understand it today it means it is our stupidity and our lack of understanding rather than the fault of the genome that it is there right uh so i would say and, and you know many scientists they say that oh it's okay to use crispr and turn some genes off and uh, so turn some genes on and insert some genes here and there and uh, in human beings and there is there are all these uh, genetically modified organisms that have been created new crops with certain supposedly beneficial properties and all that you know what people are tinkering with genes without really understanding the long term downstream effects of all that and and most of these effects they are visible only after 10 20 30 generations by the time it's impossible to do anything to change that so i think we humans have this very silly tendency to try and play god especially with genetics and all that trying to evolve our species artificially i think it's a very dangerous thing to do we know next to nothing of genetics today 97 98% of our own genome is not understood at all and yet we want to tinker with it just imagine the amount of stupidity that some scientists have that they think they can get away with this sort of sort of thing and actually do some good for humanity so i would say that it is not a good idea to play games with nature to play games with our genetics and with our physiology evolution is supposed to happen at its own pace of uh, if you look at the history of the human species we haven't changed much in the past 100000 years 1 lakh years so 
if you want to see changes in a species, you have to look at it 100,000 years at a time or maybe even longer. That's the kind of time it takes for evolution to become apparent. So we have to be patient. We have to let ourselves evolve naturally. And we should desist from trying to make artificial changes because it's going to end up costing us in the long run. Not us, our descendants. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know, sir. I don't know. See, I got lots of questions about what is this caste and what is that caste and what is their origin. I don't know anything about this. I have never been interested in the study of castes and the origin of this caste and that caste. I don't even know the origin of my whatever caste it may be. I'm not interested. I am a big picture student of history. I look at the history from a, from a big picture perspective. So I don't know who the Kayasthas are and... Uh, I'm sure they are very significant people. I'm sure we all are significant in our own way. But I don't know these small histories. I'm not I'm not trying to mean that these small histories of, of small communities mean that they are not interesting or important. They are all important. But I don't know. Sorry. All right. <clears throat> okay, here is another wonderful misconception. So uh, the question is: Did Oppenheimer created uh, create the nuclear create the nuclear bomb using some Sanskrit text? You know, the nuclear bomb was developed as a consequence of the Manhattan Project. Hundreds of physicists were involved in this. It was not one guy who went and made a nuclear bomb, right? So J. Robert Oppenheimer was the scientist who was in overall charge of the product uh, of the of the project, the Manhattan Project the project of creating the nuclear bomb and it was used it was created using the, pre the 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 principles and the laws of nuclear physics not some sanskrit text there is no sanskrit text about a nuclear bomb or nuclear energy or quantum mechanics anywhere please understand this so the thing is there is this concept everywhere lots and lots of people ask me this question that do we have some secret sanskrit text that tell that uh, give you the formula for nuclear bombs and quantum mechanics and relativity and all that. No, 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 no. There is no Sanskrit text that I know of that does any of these things. All right. So what J. Robert Oppenheimer is known for, especially in India, is for uh, quoting the Bhagavad Gita when the, uh, when the first nuclear explosion took place. So that is something you find among lots of nuclear, lots of physicists, especially theoretical physicists, that they are somehow drawn to uh, Indian philosophy towards Sanskrit and all that. So there is a reason for that. That's a different story altogether. And when he, J. Robert Oppenheimer witnessed the first nuclear explosion, he was reminded of some verse from the Bhagavad Gita. I, I have become death or something like that. So that has nothing to do with the creation of the nuclear bomb, right? Okay, here is another wonderful, uh, <laughs> very common belief about the Mahabharata, about the past in India, that we could all... Okay, the question is, Is was interspace travel present possible during the Mahabharata? Arjuna visited Swarga Loka to gain power from his father Indra. Balrama's father-in-law visited Brahma Loka. So how do we know Swarga Loka is some other planet and Brahma Loka is some other planet? Lok doesn't necessarily mean a different planet, right? So you know what? We are taking things too literally. 
and we are interpreting all these things as space travel and and i don't know what you know what there is no evidence we had any any such thing during the mahabharat era but indians believe this very strongly that we had we had uh, in, interstellar travel and we could go to different universes and all things like that there is no evidence for that unfortunately from my perspective there is no evidence of that whatsoever so that's what i can say okay what else do we have chakshu choudhary says can you please name some leader who can unify india pakistan afghanistan and all our civilization back and also some qualities which leaders need and which points should he stand on to unify i don't know any leader today who can unify the subcontinent such a leader will come in the future or maybe is already born but i don't know of any leader who can achieve this this feat today right so that's what i can say what qualities do leaders need and all that well look back in history and think of the greatest leaders we have had those are the qualities a future leader would need to be able to reunify the subcontinent think of lord ram lord krishna chandragupta maurya kanishka the great samudragupta uh, lalita aditya and uh, rajaraj chola rajendra chola etc think about those leaders and ask yourself what uh, what qualities they had those are the qualities we are looking for should a leader be the product of the society or should the society be the product of the leader in the case of bharat i would say that a leader in if if a leader were to emerge who can transform bharat completely that leader will not be the product of the society because the society we live in today is a mediocre society with very low standards so a leader if a leader were to emerge with the same characteristics then that leader would also have low standards and be a mediocre person look at most leaders today not all not all some leaders are good some leaders are ex- exceptional but the overall majority of, pop- of of politicians you see today are mediocre people people with low standards who are only self centered who only care for themselves and who are very happy to be corrupt right so we need leaders who are who who break this mold so in that case if a great leader does emerge then he or she will then force the society to change and become more like them you know what they say about cricket teams the cricket team if you look at any cricket team uh india australia whatever else the entire team automatically takes on the personality of the leader so when you have a very of the, of the captain so when you have a very soft spoken gentle captain the entire team becomes docile like sheep on the other do- on the other hand if you have a mad dog captain the entire team becomes like that they all take on the personality of their captain so the same goes for nations also when you have an extremely confident vigorous dynamic leader then the whole nation becomes invigorated like that and when you have a leader like mr manmohan singh you see what happens to the entire society so i would say that a leader should always be more exceptional and greater than the average of the of the society and then the society should become the product of the leader and and try to mold themselves in the image of the leader that is what needs to happen especially today in india
So this is an excellent question. Okay. <clears throat> what other questions do we have? Let's see. Can we compare modern days nuclear weapon to the Dwapar Yuga's Brahmastra? Listen, I don't know the characteristics of the Brahmastra. I don't know the details, the specifications, and the blast yield or any such thing. So, how do I compare? Nuclear weapons come in various sizes. There are standard fission weapons. There are fission fusion thermonuclear weapons. There are multiple stage weapons. There is a neutron bomb as well, right? There are different yields, etc. I know how the nuclear physics works in the case of the uh, nuclear bombs, right? What the Brahmastra was, I don't know. Right? How was it activated? What, what, what were the principles behind it? I don't know. So then how can I compare the two? I, I unfortunately cannot compare the two. Vikram Kumar says, would India remain in one piece by the end of this decade? I, I don't see why not. What makes you think, Vikram, that we would not remain in one piece by the end of this decade? I, I personally see no reason why India should not remain in one piece. I think that India in the next 20-30 years is going to be a superpower. God's willing. So I don't know why you're so pessimistic, Vikram. Come on. Come on. Uh, how can we per, per, pursue our ASI to excavate and find evidence of our Dharmic civilization? I have no hopes in the ASI. India needs to disband the ASI and then create a new professional archaeological organization from scratch. Because the, the majority of the ASI people are just bureaucrats. They just don't care. And if you see all the monuments, temples, etc. that are under the, under the ASI's care, they are being plundered. They are being plundered blind. So I have no hope from the ASI. I don't want to pursue or persuade them to do anything. I just want them to be disbanded. The original objective of the ASI, which is of which you may not know, it's a British creation. The British created the ASI in the 19th century. The original objective of the ASI was to find treasures that the, that the, that the British could plunder and take out of the country and put them in the British Museum and various other Western museums. So that's what the ASI, in, in some way or the other, is still actually uh, enabling and facilitating. And uh, you know what? I can show you news report after news report. I can show you hundreds of news reports in which temples and monuments that are, that are under the ASI's protection have been plundered. Right? This is all known. So, so I really don't have any hope left for the ASI. How did Hanuman reach the sun to eat it? Maybe I'm not the right person to ask this. Yeah. Maybe I'm not. Okay. Uh, Darshan says, is plastic really harmful to the environment? <coughs> Yes, plastic is extremely harmful to the environment. And the simple reason for that is it, it is not biodegradable. There are no microbes or natural processes that can degrade 
and decompose plastic and because of that plastic remains present in the in the environment either in soil or in water for decades even for centuries and what happens is that if it stays in water for decades in the oceans for instance in the rivers in lakes etc then it fragments into smaller and smaller pieces eventually becoming microscopic pieces called microplastics and then what happens is that it ends up in our food supply and water supply and whenever you drink water from a bottle or from the tap or when you eat something let's say you're eating fish for instance in japan then if you examine the, the 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 flesh of the fish under a microscope you will find that it is embedded with these microplastics so you are ingesting plastic then it's going into you and it's going to embed you in your flesh also and into your into the bodies of your of your children and so on it's going to end up poisoning the entire planet in the entire ecosystem that's how plastic is incredibly harmful to the environment it is it is choking the oceans it is creating these islands of anoxia it is descending to the bottoms of the ocean and choking the place there uh and and so many other things you know so it's it's incredibly harmful to the, to the environment and we are doing nothing we're doing nothing to stop it it's terrible <clears throat> all right where else where else are we is china hiding its current covid-19 scenario most most likely it is you know so the first few months the chinese uh, gave out some numbers of how many covid cases they had that's i'm talking about the early 2020 early the first half of 2020 and after a while they just stopped reporting numbers and the whole western media just didn't care they just kept focusing on india and they did not say a peep about the fact that the chinese had stopped giving out any numbers at all So China can afford to be completely opaque, opaque, and the Western media won't say a thing about it. So yes, I would say that China is certainly hiding its co- current COVID nineteen scenario. We don't know what's going on in going on in China. China is always very opaque. That's just how it is. Okay. what happened to vishnu sudarshan chakra did it really turn into stone after vishnu cursed it maybe i am not the right person to ask this maybe i'm not right okay why did the us invade latin america uh, latin american places 41 times in the 20th century when all these countries were very far away and not scary for them it's not they're not scared of anyone it's about power projection it's about creating a world order that is explicitly based on what you say the us is an imperial power please understand this the us is a hegemonic power it's an imperial power it's the us empire that you are living under whether you know it or not and that's what the chinese are trying to replicate today so the americans did this because the latin american countries were trying to do their own thing and how dare they right so that's the whole murky history of the 20th century you you need to really study it a little bit more to understand how the world really works you think the world is a nice free fair place rules based order and all that what nonsense the 20th century has been the american century it's been the american imperial era 
and now the american imperial era may perhaps be under threat and if the chinese succeed you're going to see a chinese imperial era so that's just how it is <clears throat> why greek and indian mythology has so much of similarities because the greeks are descendants of ancient very ancient indians so the hellenic peoples are the greeks they are the descendants of the vedic alina clan that's why all of their mythology is an offshoot of indian mythology their entire pantheon of gods is an offshoot of the indian pantheon of gods we had dios pitro the one of the oldest gods in the vedic pantheon who became zeus pater zeus the greek thunder god zeus pater in turn became jupiter who is the roman thunder god and we also have perun who is the slavic thunder god and thor who is the uh, nordic thunder god these are all different interpretations of lord indra that's all it is so so the uh, so the motherland of the uh, indo european world is india it's where the entire culture came from and that's why we are we have so many similarities between indian mythology indian culture etc and all these other indo european offshoots european offshoots i would say okay let us take uh one or two more questions how can we stop being mediocre and excel in our lives by changing our standards by not tolerating mediocrity by not tolerating failure in ourselves and in others that's it if you change your standards you will change your life if you give yourself high st- high standards and you do your best to live live up to those high standards you will no longer be mediocre it's very simple <clears throat> what's the difference between a pulsar and a magnetar i have at least two videos on this please ch- check it out you will see the details in that okay i can see so many questions that are being repeated vimanas i don't know about vimanas uh, uh willy bond says as an american i can tell you that to read a smedley butler's war is a racket the people with too much money have destroyed the american republic and our imperialist six latin leaders caught cancer very interesting thank you for the book reference i'll certainly check it out thank you is the belt and road of china a threat for for india from the security perspective yes it is a threat from a variety of perspectives so what it does is that it creates an infrastructure for china to exploit in a variety of ways it uh, so it has security implications as well if the chinese can send trains anywhere they want at any frequency they like they can also send soldiers in there and they can uh, also create these networks of influence economic network networks and and so much more so it is certainly a threat from india from multiple perspectives and also from the security perspective so for instance uh, the uh, belt and road infrastructure they are building also goes through tibet and that's all rail networks right and now the rail networks they are they are extending those same railway networks to to uh, come to almost india's border with tibet so it's going to enable them to send soldiers at any time they want so that's one way to look look at it right so it is certainly a threat 
Okay. Library of Alexandria versus Library of Nalanda. Both of them got burned. Which one contained more knowledge? I would say it was the Library of Nalanda and other Indian libraries that contained much more knowledge. Is Kumari Kandam true? Please answer this, sir. There is no evidence that Kumari Kandam is true. Right. There's no scientific evidence. There's no geological evidence. There is no evidence anywhere that this continent existed. Today, we can actually look beneath the surface of the sea and we can map the ocean bed. And that's been done. And there is no trace whatsoever of any ancient continent that may have existed in the past uh, to the south of the peninsular region of India. So, Kumari Kandam is a myth. Okay. <clears throat> How to know if the source of knowledge is genuine? You will, you can understand if 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 a source of knowledge is genuine or not only if you are more knowledgeable. So if you if you are a really well-read person, then you will know if somebody is lying or trying to fudge something. But if you are not a well-read person, then how will you know? So the only way to know if some a source of knowledge is genuine or not is to be extremely well-read yourself. There are there are no shortcuts in life, my dear friends. There are absolutely no shortcuts in life. You have to put in the hard work in order to become knowledgeable. And only then can you tell if a source of knowledge is genuine or not. That's how it is. <laughs> there are no shortcuts in life. <clears throat> All right. Where else are we? What else do we have? What's a parallel universe? Could there be potentially be ones that contain doppelgangers of everyone on Earth? Potentially anything is possible, but the, the parallel universe theory is pseudoscience. It's not science. It's not physics. It's pseudoscience. And the problem is these days is even pseudoscience passes off as science. See, a theory that is non-falsifiable is not a scientific theory. A scientific theory is one that has that must be falsifiable. So if I have a hypothesis or a theory, then it should be something that can be falsified with experiment or with theory or by putting out a better theory. If you can't do it, if you simply cannot falsify it, then it's not science anymore. It is pseudoscience. And this entire business of parallel universes is pseudoscience because there is no way to disprove it. We cannot observe anything that is beyond the observable universe, then how can we even talk about parallel universes? They may possibly exist, but there is no way of proving it or disproving it. And therefore, there's no point even discussing it, right? So yes, yeah, certainly, there could be potentially any uh, universes out there that contain exact replicas of everybody on Earth. Sure, it is possible. It may also be possible that there is a teapot in orbit between Mars and Jupiter a red teapot in orbit between Mars and Jupiter. It's possible, yes. But is there, is it really possible? I mean, it's, it's, can you really falsify it? You can't falsify it. And therefore, you know what? There's no point discussing it. Okay, my friends, let's take one final question. Is there any interesting question out here? Uh, 
why all mouse have bharatiya mouse ancestry bajra is still grown in rajasthan gujarat i know it is still <laughs> grown in rajasthan and gujarat but it is no longer a staple crop india wide right okay now why do all mice have bharatiya mouse ancestry that's an interesting question this is by subita devi so uh, i haven't studied this in great detail i had seen a paper a long time ago it it does appear that all mice in eurasia seem to be descended from an ancestral mouse that uh, lived in india several thousand years ago so that is a very interesting uh, point that's something i need to look into in more detail but once again it points to the veracity of the out of india theory not the aryan invasion theory or aryan migration tourism picnic theory nowadays there is even an aryan refugee theory the thing is almost all mice across eurasia europe and asia seem to have indian mouse ancestry which means that ancestor which means that their ancestor was an indian mouse who lived several thousand years ago so that and, and once again mice don't migrate on their own they travel with human beings surreptitiously they will travel but they will certainly travel only with humans because they are kind of kind of a domesticated species so that's interesting yeah so so it would mean that it indicates a migration of indians beyond india and with their travels they also brought along their their mice that's what it would indicate okay all right i think i'm going to stop it here uh, thank you very much everybody for your questions very interesting questions as always some some were really interesting so um yeah that brings us to an end of this session and we shall continue next week and i'm going to have more interesting things coming in in the coming weeks days and weeks so thank you everyone once again and take care and i will see you very soon bye